ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 19 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. My 2020 fantasy football draft guide is finally published. Let's dive in. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them all the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? Like that. Just keep a trickling the ball down the field. Boy. I saw, son. I saw. Hello. You play to win the game. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. I took the week off from podcasting to churn out and write up this year's draft guide, and I'm happy to report that the moment that a lot of listeners have been anxiously awaiting, my 2020 fantasy football. Draft board and strategy guide has been posted. It is published. It's on fantasylawguide.com. And and once you get to that page, you can click the link to the fantasy law guide on the left. And that'll immediately take you to a massive PDF document. The first part of which is my draft board. And it's a round by round strategy advice. There's players ranked specifically for your drafts which is very different than player rankings, by the way. And there's a big distinction between ranking players like an accuracy contest, who will score the most, who will score the second most, et cetera, and ordering them on a draft board. What you see on my draft board are actually not necessarily my player rankings. This is how I would draft them, however. And that takes into account ADP, positional value, variance, and so many other factors that normal player rankings do not. So there's a big conceptual difference there. You may realize that, you may not, you may not care either way, but I did want to clear up any confusion beforehand. But anyway, there's sleepers at every position, you know, all filled out like pages and pages of sleepers and late round strategy. There's kickers, there's defense. You won't find another draft guide that goes into more detail about sleepers and kickers and defense. You know, I can almost guarantee that, but you name it, it's there. And after that, there's even a commissioner section, how to improve your league. There's a Superflex article that I wrote, of course, and there's my personal fantasy football history after that, if you're interested in that kind of thing. And then the second half of this fantasy law guide is the contextualized game logs, which are game-by-game blurbs and summaries of every game for every fantasy-relevant player last year. And the, the contextualized game logs, they take up 200 pages alone, but it's a useful resource, you know, a tool that you can use for your drafts. And if you're a hardcore fantasy player, and you're kind of deciding, you know, you, you like DJ Moore, and you're kind of looking at his stats, and you want to see why DJ Moore had only one catch for six yards against the Colts in Week 15. Well, you can Control F or Command Find DJ Moore, or just scroll down to the Carolina contextualized game logs and figure out why. And spoiler alert, you know, DJ Moore exited Week 15 after six snaps with an injury. That's why he didn't have any production in that game. But regular game logs won't tell you that. They won't tell you. If your receiver exited early or if your receiver was being shattered by shutdown corner Stephon Gilmore, they won't tell you if he was playing with his backup quarterback or if the weather was so bad, it was windy and driving rain that they couldn't throw the ball. And they won't tell you if they were trailing the second half. So in all of his yards and touchdowns were garbage, basically garbage yards. And they also won't tell you if, 
you know, he had a touchdown called back by penalty, or if his one touchdown was a fluky play that got tipped up in the air by the linebacker and then just miraculously landed in DJ Moore's hands. When you look at a normal game log, it's just stats with no context. So these contextualized game logs at the bottom of the fantasy log guide can be a great tool for seasoned players who want to do more of a deep dive into how a player's statistics were accrued last season and the context behind each game. And that and that's a big benefit that can help your research to see if these stats are fluky or sticky. And there's also a ton of offensive line information, you know, injuries, starts, whether offensive lines are good or not. There's also defensive player rankings or excuse me, defensive player ratings to keep up with transactions this offseason. It's all color-coded, so new arrivals are different colors. Uh, Departures are are red, new arrivals are purple. Elite players are green and blue. You may be scrolling through it and just, you know, you might forget that Von Bell now plays for the Bengals. So it's just a great way to stay apprised with what's going on in the NFL. You may just be getting back into it. And I'm going to update this monster just constantly. But the thing you care about most is the fantasy football analysis, the draft board. And you'll notice that some of the player explanations, like from round four to round nine, are incomplete. And it says I'll be giving these explanations on the podcast and then posting them afterwards. And that is true. My episodes for the next week or so will be tied to my board and they'll be extremely player-specific as it pertains to fantasy drafts. But no, the cliffhangers were not designed to get you to listen to this podcast. It's honestly just because I ran out of time. I'm a very long-winded person, and I like I tend to over-explain things, and I like giving full breakdowns and analysis, all the pros and cons of drafting a certain player, all the research that I've done, the great stats that I've discovered or read about, and, and that takes forever. You know, I see these rankings all the time where it's just like one or two sentences after each player, and I just don't know how they do it. I don't have it in me to be that concise, and it pains me to say because usually great writers are concise. But it's just not my style. I like giving you the full picture of everything so you know exactly what you're getting into. All of the strengths and weaknesses of drafting a certain player. And all the arguments for and against the same. And I'll be giving that elaboration on each player here in this podcast. And I'll be updating the board accordingly with hopefully some shortened versions of those explanations in the coming days. But we're going to start from the beginning. And today's episode is going to focus on early round targets in your fantasy football drafts, early round strategy. So let's kick off with round one. So I'm definitely wanting to get a top six pick this year because I think there's a pretty sizable drop-off after the first six picks, at least according to my board. And those first six picks all are running backs. And most experts see the drop-off after Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, after Zeke, like after the top three. I do not, and I'll get into why that is in a second. But the key point here is that I'm not considering any other players in the top six other than CMC, Barkley, Kamara, Zeke, Derrick Henry, and Clyde Edwards-Elaire. So it's not exactly groundbreaking stuff. All those guys are ranked like one through eight or one through nine on most websites and by most experts. But there are some noticeable differences from the experts and the consensus or mainstream rankings that you'll see in your platforms and my draft board, even early. And the first is that I have Kamara ranked ahead of Zeke. And this may be controversial on the surface, but I, and I want you to understand before I kind of dive in, is that I have all six of these guys just so close 
particularly Zeke and Kamara. I mean, it's almost a coin flip for me. And you can even make a great argument that Zeke should be number two over Barkley because his situation in Dallas just makes him a safer pick than Barkley's situation in New York with the Giants. And you're not going to get any pushback from me if you take Zeke two. But I've spoken a lot about Kamara on this podcast. And he battled back and knee and ankle injuries at various times last year, starting in week three. And I think there's massive, potentially massive, positive touchdown regression coming his way. This is a guy who scored 31 touchdowns in 31 career games before last season when he only scored 6 in 14 games. So we should see double-digit scores from Kamara, like back to that standard. And the Saints, they're just all around just a great situation for running backs. A terrific team. It's a winning team, so they'll have positive game scripts. They have a great quarterback in Drew Brees. Their offensive line is arguably the best offensive line in the NFL. And Zeke has a lot of that too. But the slight distinction for me comes with receptions. Because Kamara has had 81 catches in every season he's played. And he did so missing two games last year. And with playing with Teddy Bridgewater in some of those games. And as Drew Brees' arm strength wanes, because he's 41 years old, we're, we're seeing more short throws. We've seen Drew Brees' average depth of target decrease in each of the last three seasons that he's played. And it's just the way the Saints' offense is designed now. Whereas Dallas' offense is predicated more on downfield throws, at least it was last season. You know, the Saints' offense is focuses on short to intermediate throws. And the evidence of this was even there when Teddy Bridgewater came in because he was he was playing the same way as Drew Brees, a very low average depth of target and, and very few deep shots. And Drew Brees is still the most accurate quarterback in the short to intermediate areas. And this is where Kamara excels in the passing game. So let's say Alvin Kamara and Zeke score a similar amount of touchdowns last, next season. Let's say it's like 11 touchdowns. That's what I have projected here for both of them. So if that happens, if they both score 11 touchdowns, Zeke will have Zeke will definitely have more rushing yards. We know that. Kamara has never even rushed for 1,000 yards in a season, and Zeke d- rushes for like 1,300 like every year. But Kamara could have 40 more catches than Zeke. And in PPR, that's 40 more points. So Zeke will need 400 more total yards not just rushing total yards than Kamara to outscore him on the same amount of touchdowns. So yeah, I have Kamara three because I just think he's going to have at least probably 40 more catches than Zeke. And I just think that'll be the difference there. But again, you know, I can argue the reverse pretty easily. And there's also easy arguments that can be made that Kamara is number two overall. And that Zeke is number two and that Barkley's number four. And I can even make an argument that Derrick Henry sitting at five on my board, is no, is worth the number two overall pick. Like, I wouldn't even scoff at that, honestly. And that's the second big difference that I have over some of the experts. You like to throw Dalvin Cook and Michael Thomas in there over Derrick Henry. And I just disagree with that because we saw what Henry could do. What he, Sorry, not what he could do. What Henry did last year with Ryan Tannehill under center. Henry had 273 carries. 1,570 yards and 14 touchdowns on 5.7 yards a carry. That sounds like great 16-game numbers. He did that with 12 games with Ryan Tannehill under center. His 22.5 points per game in that span in the 12-game sample with Tannehill was RB2 pace 
right behind, I mean, not right behind Christian McCaffrey. There was a gap there, but only behind Christian McCaffrey. So the argument that Derrick Henry could go number two overall or be worthy of that pick is clear in the game logging. He was the number two overall running back last year with Ryan Tannehill. So it's really that simple. Nothing's changed in that outlook. Or I shouldn't say nothing's changed, but the only thing that's changed is they lost run blocking Mauler, right tackle Jack Conklin. That stings, but they drafted right a right tackle Isaiah Wilson in the first round to replace him of the draft. And then the other thing that changed is they lost Deion Lewis, pass catching specialist. Derrick Henry only 18 catches last year. Derrick Henry's backup is Darrington Evans, a you know a mid-round rookie with a shortened offseason who comes from Appalachian State. So Derrick Henry, there's room to grow on his catches. And if he can increase his catches from like 18 catches to 30 catches, that's like two touchdowns. That's huge in PPR leagues. Henry also has the league's softest schedule against the run per Warren Sharp. And there's just no team that puts more of a focal point on their running back. There's no team that designs their game plans and their offense around their running back than the Titans do with Derrick Henry. And that includes Christian McCaffrey in Carolina. So yeah, Derrick Henry is an easy top five overall pick for me. And and I have him well ahead of Dalvin Cook and Michael Thomas for, for different reasons, which we'll get to in a second. But for now, I'll move on to the sixth overall pick, which for me is Clyde edwards Lair. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air. And look, I get that he's a rookie, and there's hesitation on drafting a rookie sixth overall, especially in a shortened COVID offseason. But all of the reports out of training camp is that this guy is not only picking up the offense and running with the starters, like without question, but that this guy's going to be a star in this offense. And it's just an amazing situation for a rookie. It reminds me when the Cowboys took Zeke over fourth overall over like guys like Jalen Ramsey. You can you can have that conversation all you want about whether running backs matter, whether it's a good pick, but none of that matters for fantasy. What matters is they were heavily invested in Zeke at fourth overall, which is his eight, he was I think eight overall ADP the year he came out, and I had him at like twelfth overall, so he wasn't on my teams. And then he finished as a top five running back that year, maybe a top four running back, I think. And this kind of reminds me of the same situation where you have a team that's heavily invested in Clyde edwards helaire a first-round pick. And, and yeah, you might be thinking, well, Zeke was number four overall. edwards helaire was number 32 overall. Big difference there. Well, edwards helaire they had their choice of all the running backs the Chiefs did at 32 overall. No running backs had been taken in a pretty stacked running back class. And this wasn't just, uh, okay, well, you know, I guess we'll take Clyde edwards helaire situation. This was a a targeted selection here. GM Brett Veach, you know, this was his guy. He made Brian Westbrook comparisons right after taking him. Andy Reid, whose offense has supported a top six, 16 fantasy running back for 12 of the last 15 seasons. Andy Reid desperately wanted Clyde edwards helaire That was his guy. Even Pat Mahomes, when asked who he would take in round one, he said Clyde. This is a hand-selected running back in an offense propelled by Andy Reid such a successful track record with fantasy running backs and Patrick Mahomes led prolific Chiefs offense. The situation is just ideal. And then Damian Williams opt out, propelled Clyde Edwards Hilaire to round one status. So yeah, Edwards Hilaire, not an elite prospect or an elite athlete, but his pass catching chops in his prime situation, I mean he's gonna catch at least 50 passes next year. 
provide him with a, an extremely high fantasy floor. And, and I don't think he has the top three ceiling that some do. I mean, I guess he does. I don't want to say it's impossible. It's in the realm of outcomes for sure. It's in the realm of outcomes that he's number one overall player. I don't see him. I'd be surprised if he finished top three. But I would also be surprised if he finished lower than RB10 overall. So Edwards Elaire, pretty safe pick despite being a rookie in this offense. So that is my top six overall. And again, I have a massive drop-off after the top six. So I want to land a top six pick in fantasy football this year because the worst spot in round one on my board, and you will notice, is picks seven through nine. Because the next highest player I have rated on my board is Josh Jacobs, the running back for the Vegas Raiders. And that is going to seem like somewhat of a reach. And I will admit it's a pretty aggressive stance by me. And it's similar to when I had Dalvin Cook sixth overall last year when Cook's ADP was, I think, 19 overall. This year, Josh Jacobs is ranked 18th overall on Yahoo formats. I think he's closer to like 12 on ESPN. But yeah, I have him as top seven. And, and that's why Josh Jacobs is going to be on a lot of my teams this year. And he already is. I already have a lot of exposure to Jacobs. Because if I'm picking the back half of round one, I'm pretty much a lock to get Josh Jacobs unless one of those top six running backs falls for whatever reason. So let me get into why you know I kind of fell in love with Jacobs this offseason because it didn't initially start this way. I didn't start my research going in thinking, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to be you know aggressively reaching for Josh Jacobs this year. He's definitely going to be my seventh overall player. You know, it didn't start that way. Jacobs has slowly climbed up in my rankings as I've done more research. Jacobs last year only 14.7 points a game, which is in 13 games last year, which is only RB 16 pace which is okay as a rookie, but I kind of took a deep dive into Jacobs' contextualized game log, and, and there you can see that the Raiders really did treat Josh Jacobs as a bell cow running back when they had a chance, like when game flow permitted. And that, unfortunately, was not often last year because the Raiders' offense was not very good because they did not have a passing game because they had no receivers. And the Raiders just struggled to move the ball through the air because of their lack of receiving weapons and because of some offensive line injuries and because of Derek Carr's continuing need to check the ball down, you know, this all limited their scoring opportunities. And this, re- this also resulted in Josh Jacobs being taken out of a lot of games be- in the second half of games because the team was like trailing by double digits. Like there were games like against the Chiefs where Jacobs racked up like 99 rushing yards in the first half of the game and then he played like five snaps the rest of the game because they were just getting blown out. Josh Jacobs, when given the opportunity last year, was phenomenal. I mean, Jacobs showed elite rushing ability on the field. He was number one in pro football focus elusiveness rating, number one in missed tackles force, number six in yards after contact per rushing attempt. Jacobs was an incredible runner last year. And he was that efficient and dominated all of the running back metrics on the ground despite playing through a separated shoulder injury that he sustained in week seven that he played through. And this was also despite injuries to four or five starting offensive linemen at different times that caused the starting offensive linemen to miss 17 total starts. But this offensive line returns Five of five offensive starters. They return all five starters in 2020. They should be healthier next year. Positive health regression there. 
And I think the Raiders offense is just going to be better and give Jacobs more scoring opportunities uh, because they just have more pass catching threats now. So I think you have a situation where as long as the scoreboard permits, Josh Jacobs is going to be a bell cow in the focal point of this offense. And he was drafted in the first round to do so, to be such a player. And the Raiders have just loved this, loved Jacobs since the moment they drafted. Actually, it was before they even drafted Josh Jacobs. One of the picks that I got, you know, I'm a big mock draft, uh, NFL mock draft guy. One of the picks I got right and just never changed throughout the draft process was mocking Josh Jacobs to the Raiders because the drumbeat was that strong on the Raiders loving Josh Jacobs. I think John Gruden, I think Mayock are obsessed with this guy. And I also think that there's a chance that Jacobs' pass-catching role is increased because that's the big debate in the fantasy community of experts right now is, is can he catch more passes? He only caught 20 passes last year. He only ran 12 routes per game. He was not utilized as a pass catcher as a rookie. And the Raiders, they've sent mixed messages about Jacobs' receiving role this season. Their actions are speaking differently than their words. Like Mayock and Gruden have both talked up how they're going to use Jacobs in the passing game more, which is great. However, you know, they signed Devontae Booker, Theo Reddick. They re-signed Jalen Richard, all pass-catching backs. And they drafted Lynn Bowden, who's a receiver-slash-running-back hybrid. So it's unclear whether Jacobs does improve in the receiving game. But if, we, if he can even get his 20 catches to like 35, I think we're looking at possible fantasy stardom here because I do think Jacobs is that talented and I do think the Raiders want to use him that much. So this is why I have Jacobs at seven overall. And I know when it's an aggressive stance on Jacobs, uh, but I do feel confident that he's going to outperform his average draft position, which is again, you know, closer to like 14 overall if you combine the ESPN the ESPN ADP and the Yahoo ADP. So so if I'm at the back half of round one and all the top six running backs are gone, Jacobs is my guy. So moving on to round two. And I think the first thing you'll notice when you look at my board in round two is I'm not ready to spend a first round pick on Dalvin Cook. And, and there's, there's a few reasons before, uh, for it. But the main one is that I think that he is a real threat to hold out. And nobody's talking about it. Adam Schefter reported that it might happen. Uh, but nobody's talking about it now that training camp has started. But I think that once the regular season game starts, it wouldn't surprise me if Dalvin Cook at least threatened to hold out or to sit out some games to get this contract situation resolved. And until his situation with his contract is resolved, I feel a little unsteady or uneasy about taking Dalvin Cook in round one. So... You know, Dalvin Cook is likely going to go in round one in fantasy drafts, and I recognize that. So the fact that I have him in round two means that you're probably not going to end up with Dalvin Cook on your teams, and I'm not going to as well, and I'm okay with that because Cook has several red flags. I mean, other than the holdout, you're also talking about one of the biggest injury risks in all of fantasy football. And last year, Dalvin Cook managed to stay healthy. And he managed, for the most part, until week 12 when he had the first shoulder issue. But he managed to play 14, 15 games last year. And he was RB2 in that span. He was a phenomenal. He was great. And he's in a Gary Kubiak offense, which is like a cheat code for running backs. Wherever Gary Kubiak has gone, you know, he's a disciple of Mike Shanahan in that system, which just churns out RB1 production in fantasy football. And wherever Kubiak and tends to go, you know, his running backs flourish. I mean, even... 
dating back to like Arian Foster, Steve Slayton for that one year, Justin Forsett for that amazing uh, breakout year in Baltimore. Uh, Jerry, Gary Kubiak is a cheat code for running backs, and this was one of the main reasons that I loved Cook so much last year, and I ranked him sixth overall when his ADP was, I think, 18th. And But these high-injury risk players have a tendency to kind of ebb and flow. Like last year, you know, one of the reasons that his ADP was so low was because he was seen as injury-prone. People were afraid to take that risk. And then now he plays, you know, a full season. Now nobody's talking about him being an injury risk. So to me, it just seems likely, more likely than not, he's going to miss time. So to me, he also comes, in my opinion, with the added cost of you have to take Alexander Madison after Dalvin Cook if you take Dalvin Cook in your drafts. Like you just have to take him. Like it's a it's a necessary requirement to take Alexander Madison in round 10 if you take Dalvin Cook because this backfield is that valuable under Gary Kubiak in Minnesota. But I'm just not convinced with the injury risk and with the holdout risk. And there's just too many red flags for me to justify and feel comfortable taking Dalvin Cook in round one. So so yeah, Dalvin Cook will likely not be on my teams and he won't be on yours either if you're following this board. And again, that's something that I've come to grips with and I'm okay with. I'm letting other people take the big risk. It might pan out, but it certainly might not. And I'm not willing to take that chance in round one. So speaking of holdout, the next ranked running back that I have is Joe Mixon. And when I first published the guide, I actually had Joe Mixon eighth overall and in round one, like right behind Josh Jacobs. Like those Mixon and Jacobs were the two guys that I was targeting in round one. And I thought the best case scenario of being at the turn, like near the turn is landing, you know, Joe Mixon and Josh Jacobs. But I've moved Mixon down a few spots from round one, eighth overall, over rumors of a holdout. And I am a little concerned that he's also going to hold out, hence the move. But I do, I will move Mixon back up and, and Dalvin Cook back up, probably to round one for that matter, if they do in their holdout. But for now, I think it's important to be more cautious uh, because you just never know if these guys are going to miss time. You know, it could be a situation where they sign right before the season like Ezekiel Elliott did last year and then end up having a great year. Or it could be a situation like Melvin Gordon where they miss, they hold out into the regular season and miss four to six games. Or it could be a situation where they pull Le'Veon Bell and just don't play and they miss the whole year and you spend a first round pick on this guy. So I'm moving Mixon and Cook down to round two because I don't want people to be spending first-round picks on them if they don't have to. And I'll talk a little about Mixon's outlook here. Mixon had such an interesting season, because the 2019 season, because the first half of the season, he was horrible. Like, it was a total dumpster fire. He was averaging only 15 touches a game, which is 27th among running backs. And he was playing only 54% of the team's offensive snaps. He was averaging 3.19 yards a carry through the first eight games, and he was averaging only 10 points a game in fantasy football, which is RB28 pace. And the Bengals just stunk. And Henry also kind of tweaked his ankle in week one. And it was, it was, he was questionable his game time decision for week two, but it's possible he was playing with an ankle sprain. And the Bengals, were, they were 0-8. They just lost the starting quarterback, Andy Dalton. Before the te- during the team's bye, they wisely came to their senses and just totally changed his offense. 
and to, to revolve around Mixon. And they started just running out the clock. Like there were games where they were getting blown out. You know, there was one in particular against Baltimore where they were trailing like 48 to 11 in the second half. And they were still just pounding the ball, like pounding the rock with Joe Mixon. Just running out the clock so they could get, you know, land Joe Burrow with the number one overall pick. And Mixon was the main beneficiary of this offensive philosophy shift, we'll call it, that saw Cincinnati become one of the most run-heavy teams in the league in the second half of last season despite massively negative game scripts. And in weeks 10 through 17, Mixon was the RB8, or sorry, excuse me, RB9 pace. And he was on pace for... 386 touches in 1,988 total yards and 10 touchdowns. Like if you were to extrapolate his final eight games of last year over to 16 games. So massive numbers that Mixon was putting up. Now he wasn't catching a lot of passes. And that's one kind of bugaboo with Mixon there, along with Josh Jacobs, that they don't catch a lot of passes. But Mixon is entering a contract year, as I've mentioned you know, you can spin that to be positive if he actually does play, uh, but it's also a negative if he holds out. But he's also just in the prime of his career. And, of course, the Bengals' offense just gets an influx of talent. They get Jonah Williams back, who is a fantastic run blocker in college. He missed all of last season. He was their first-round pick last year uh, with an injury. And then Cincinnati's offensive line just is still way below average, but they could not block a soul last year. And Mixon did what he could with what he had. He made the best of the situation. He led the NFL in evaded tackles last year. He only scored a touchdown on 1.8% of his carries. So positive touchdown regression could be coming. And also, you know, I haven't even mentioned Joe Burrow is now on this team. They get A.J. Green back as well. So we're going to see a better Bengals offense. And Joe Burrow could be finding more use of Mixon in the passing game like he found Clyde Edwards-Elair last year with LSU. So, yeah, I like Mixon a lot as long as he's not holding out. And I would have had him eighth overall and in my first round. But, again, this holdout has me moving him back a few spots. But assuming Mixon does play, you know, I think starting your draft with Josh Jacobs and Joe Mixon is a heck of a start, like at the back half of round one and early round two. Uh, but again, you got to watch out for the, you got to keep an eye on this holdout. And right now, I may be more comfortable taking the elite receivers like Devontae Adams and Michael Thomas. And you may notice, actually, that I actually have Devontae Adams ahead of Michael Thomas. This is somewhat of a, I, I, I mean, it's not somewhat, it is a pretty bold stance. Keep in mind that I have these guys very close together. I mean, this is kind of a coin flip to me. However, the reason I'm ranking Adams over Michael Thomas is because I see Devontae Adams being in the situation that Michael Thomas was in last season, where Michael Thomas, you know, the Saints had no other options last year to throw to other than Michael Thomas because Alvin Kamara was hurt. He was not playing healthy. Jared Cook was in his first year with the new team. The team had no other wide receivers capable of stepping up. And, And this is similar to the Packers situation where they just have nothing, you know, infamously nothing outside of De- Devontae Adams. So I think he's just going to be peppered with targets, just like flooded. I think Adams could push for 180 targets and double-digit scores this year, and he's quietly finished as a top-10 receiver uh, in, in points per game in the last four straight seasons. And the thing I like most about Adams is that, you know, he finished so strongly last year. He averaged 22 point. 
0.35 points a game, which was wide receiver two pace, only 0.5 points per game, fewer than Michael Thomas over his last eight games, including postseason. So weeks 12 through 19, 22.35 points a game. Again, only 0.5 points per game, fewer than Michael Thomas. So he's right up there with Thomas the way he closed out the stretch. And then if you take into account that Michael Thomas has a little more competition for targets this year. He has, you know, Jared Cook entering the second year. The Saints signed Emmanuel Sanders to come in and, you know, maybe take some uh, pressure off Michael Thomas and play the slot role there. And Alvin Kamara, again, is going to be a big part of this offense, and he'll be healthy. And he's kind of a sponge out of the backfield with for targets. So, yeah, I just think that, to me, Devontae Adams is entering that season is entering that scenario where Michael Thomas was entering last season uh, where, you know, Michael Thomas, you know, no disrespect to him. He was PPR gold last year. He broke all kinds of records and he's caught at least a hundred catches or a hundred passes in three straight years. Uh, You know, I love Michael Thomas, but I have him at wide receiver two, ninth overall. And, and I would probably take just because of the scarcity of running backs. Again, I would probably take Josh Jacobs over Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams. Overall, it's just tough to take a wide receiver in round one this year because of the positional scarcity at running back. And that's kind of a theme, you know, in this draft guide that you'll see. You know, I'm trying to hit running backs early and aggressively, and then maybe an elite tight end thrown in there, and then start rapid firing at receiver in rounds like five through seven. Because receivers are just so deep, and there's just so many great ones available in rounds five through seven. There's literally no need to take one in round three or even round four because the ones that are available in round five are just as good, if not better, than the ones that are being taken in rounds three and four. So, you know, you use that positional value and you combine that with the the scarcity at running back and you'll notice this massive drop off my board at running back after round three. And you combine that with just the overall depth at the receiver position. The solution is simple. You know, the calculation is simple. Generally speaking, you know, I want running backs early, maybe a mix in the elite tight end, who I'll get to in a second, and then hit receivers, you know, nonstop in the middle rounds. And my draft board reflects this. So it sucks, you know, having sure things like Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams, you know, having them in round two and not round one in PPR formats. And even like Julio Jones at 18 overall. Julio, get the stretch. It just hurts to do that in PPR formats, but at the end of the draft, If you're following my board, I think you'll be happy that you took running backs early because you'll be shocked at how good the receivers are, you know, that you got in rounds five through seven. But this doesn't mean that, you know, Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams are bad picks in round two. I think that, you know, having that safety is very valuable, especially in rounds one and two, where, you know, you want to make sure you're getting the foundation of your team. If you feel more confident in the later round running backs than I do, then sure, take Devontae Adams and Michael Thomas but I, in round two. But I do lean towards running backs there. And, and Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. You know, who I have 12 overall right now, RB10. He's a, he's a nice early second round um, target here. He's going close to the turn. But he was RB4 in his eight games with Arizona last season. And his eight-game pace stretched out to a full-game season, 1,600 yards, 56 catches, and 16 touchdowns. And 
Mike Clay did a great job, and you can see this on the Fantasy Law Guide, did a great job of spelling out how he was used as a bell cow running back last season in Arizona, even though he had never had before. You know, I do worry that he's a little unproven. You know, other than these eight games, he's never been used as a workhorse. Uh, so I do think it's necessary, kind of a mandatory handcuff policy with Chase Edmonds. But in Cliff Kingsbury's system, this is a system where running back production was was outstanding. So yeah, Kenyon Drake, ta- always been an efficient, talented player. So yeah, you can see the upside as a top five running back, like easily, you can easily see it with Kenyon Drake as long as he does stay healthy. But yeah, I, I do feel nervous enough or at least want to hedge my bet enough to be drafting Chase Edmonds if I draft Kenyon Drake. Uh, the next available player, Miles Sanders. I mean, look, he is a highly polarizing player, of course. Sanders is somebody who I would take in the early second round, and I've been lower on Sanders than consensus uh, ADP or experts, but I'm warming up to him as the season progresses. I mean, as the offseason progresses because they're not signing somebody like Devonta Freeman. Sanders finished... Final seven games after the bye week and after Jordan Howard got hurt, Sanders had 17.6 points per game, his RB10 pace. Uh, now, a lot of this was against, a lot of his production was against in three games against Miami, Washington, and Dallas, bad defenses. Uh, but the Eagles have brought in no competition. They have a good quarterback. It's a good offense. It's a winning team. There's just, Sanders is such a good pass catcher that in PPR formats, he's going to have that floor as long as he's out there. I think he's a little overrated by the experts. You know, he actually ranked 45th out of 45 qualifying backs in, sorry, 44th out of 45 qualifying backs in PFF rushing grade. And he's relatively unproven as a workhorse, just like Kenyon Drake is. They have somewhat of the same sample there, kind of similar picks. That's why I have them graded right next to each other. But there are a lot of reasons to like both of those players. It's just one of those things where the running back position is just so important. And so scarce that I'm willing to take running backs with warts in round two, knowing that I'm going to end up with great receivers later on anyway in rounds like four through seven. So I'm moving on to the next player overall on my board. And that is 14 overall. And this is a big one here. This is George Kittle. And I'm planting a flag right here with George Kittle. Because George Kittle, I think he is, the stars are aligning for a monster season. For George Kittle, he played through so many injuries last season. You know, knee, ankle, groin. He played through a torn labrum last year, and yet he had such a phenomenal season that doesn't necessarily show up in the box score. PFF, Pro Football Focus, rated George Kittle as their number one overall player in the NFL, not just tight end player last season, despite all those injuries. And Kittle ranked first in yards per route run, which is a pretty predictive metric for wide receiver and tight end success. First in drop rate, second in PFF's run blocking grades. He's just an overall all-around great player. Second in receptions in, in yards per game and second in yak per reception. And he and that's per all of that stats per Graham Barfield. In addition, Kittle finished first among all players in yards per route run in yards per route run among tight ends ever last season. And according to Scott Barrett of FantasyPoints.com, and despite being such an efficient touchdown scorer in college, Kittle has had extremely poor luck in the NFL with touchdown totals. His touchdown totals in the three pro, in his three pro seasons, two, six, and six. So we could see major positive touchdown regression. He could have a, a blow-up touchdown season at some point. 
where he scores double-digit touchdowns. And evidence of this is provided by the fact that Kittle last season had three touchdowns called back by penalties. And he led the NFL in that stat. And that's something, that's a great stat that you can see in the contextualized game logs in my draft guide. And now, and now Kittle enters this season in his prime, presumably healthy, due for an uptick in touchdowns. And he's just the unquestioned centerpiece of the Niners' passing attack. And this is a passing game that lacks weapons at receiver. Debo Samuel broke his foot this offseason. He may start the season missing some games. While the de facto number one receiver, Brandon Ayuk, the first-round rookie, you know, COVID-shortened offseason, and he hurt his hamstring in training camp, so he's not practicing. And right now in practice, this leaves Kendrick Bourne and Trent Taylor as the team's starting wide receivers. So Kittle just could be flooded with targets. And this is also a passing game that is due for more volume because last season, the 49ers defense in the running game enabled them to just destroy teams like at will. And there were just so many games where the Niners just leaned heavily on their running game and only asked Jimmy Garoppolo to throw. Not seriously. What's your name, man? Jimmy Garoppolo. My name is Jimmy Garoppolo. Like a handful of times in the second half of games because the team was just blowing out its opponent. So the consistent positive game scripts in the laundry list of injuries that Kittle had last year limited his production. And and I think it's unlikely that either issue is as prevalent this season. Garoppolo will be forced to throw more. and, And Kittle is set up to be a league winner in 2020. So I am drafting Kittle accordingly like he is my mid second round like go to target mid to late second round and his ADP is still 23 overall so theoretically you can even get Kittle in the early third round which is just stealing at that point so yeah I'll move on right after Kittle you know Nick Chubb you know he is just such an interesting you know polarizing prospect he's just a really tough read like it's just really tough to predict the usage with him and Kareem Hunt, and, and and I know the splits. I know that Kareem Hunt was RB23 last year in weeks 10 through 17 when Kareem Hunt returned, and he was RB5 in the first nine games or first eight games when Hunt was sidelined with the suspension. Like, I get it, but I don't put that much weight in those splits because, you know, this is a totally new, this is a totally new offense, right? Like, new head coach Kevin Stefanski, and he worked alongside Gary Kubiak last season, who I've, you know, propelled Minnesota uh, and Dalvin Cook to this monster career year. And the Browns are creating a new Smash Mouth identity, like just like the Vikings did in Cook's breakout season last year. They hired offensive line guru Bill Callahan to coach the unit, and then they drafted Jedrick Wills, the offensive tackle in round one. You know, they signed great run blocker Jack Conklin. They traded for a fullback. They signed Austin Hooper. They're going to use more two tight end sets rather than three wide personnel. Uh, so Stefanski's offense projects to be extremely run heavy. And Chubb is just such a great runner. Finished first in PFF grade among 77 running backs for both of the last, like for two straight seasons. And Chubb, I also think, could be due for more touchdowns. Last year, you know, he had negative 14 yards on 15 rushing attempts and only two touchdowns inside the five-yard line last year. Negative 14 yards on 15 carries and two touchdowns inside the five last year. So I do believe that Kareem Hunt is very talented. And, you know, certainly he's more versatile versatile than Chubb. 
because Chubb isn't much of a factor in the passing games. And I worry that, you know, the way that they used Dalvin Cook last year in Minnesota, that maybe they'll want Kareem Hunt playing more because Dalvin Cook caught a lot of passes last year. He was used a crap ton in the receiving game. And I apologize for the rain here. Uh, We're getting the remnants of Hurricane Laura, and you may hear some rain in the background. And, you know, my thoughts and prayers are going all out to uh, people who, who have lost their homes and have had damage and potentially even lost their lives in this massive storm. Uh, but, I, but I will continue here. You know, in non-PPR formats, Chubb, you know, is bumped up a couple spots for me, maybe even into the top 10, top 12 overall, maybe even ahead of the elite wide receivers. But in PPR formats, you know, this is a situation where it's just tough to project the usage with Hunt and Chubb. And, you know, you can make the argument that maybe Kareem Hunt will be more of a slot receiver and Chubb will be more of the, the primary running back. Or you could make the argument that, you know, because of Chubb's lack of receiving usage, that Kareem Hunt will be, you know, it'd be a 50-50 timeshare. And then Chubb won't be worth a top 15 overall pick. So Chubb's just a tough read. I mean, I'll be totally honest. But the upside in this Kevin Stefanski offense is, is enormous. I mean, we saw that what Dalvin Cook did last year in the same uh, scheme. So, yeah, I still think Chubb is worth, you know, a second-round pick just because he could be, you know, a potential star if they use him the right way. So right after Nick Chubb, Julio Jones sits at 16 overall. Julio, get the stretch. And look, I love Julio Jones this year, and, and I wish he didn't play receiver so I could draft him on like every team because I just think Julio is like one of the safest picks in fantasy football. I mean, it, it seems crazy because he had this injury stigma early in his career, but Julio has now finished five straight seasons as a top six wide receiver in fantasy football. And it, he's seen at least 129 targets in six straight seasons, according to John Daigle. And he, last year, wide receiver five pace with 18.3 yards a game. He led the NFL in air yards with almost 100 more air yards in second place. And the Falcons are just set up to just feed Julio Jones this year. They lost Austin Hooper, their tight end. They lost Mohamed Sanu, their slot receiver. They lost pass-catching running back Devonta Freeman. Julio, I forgot to mention, he's also hit at least 1,300 receiving yards in each of the last six seasons. Uh, but the Falcons just they the Falcons just have no running game still, I project. They have no defense. They're going to be playing home games indoors. They play in the offensive uh, division in the NFC South. I think Julio is a no-brainer pick in round two. And I have no issues if you want to take Julio over some of the running backs with warts that I just mentioned you know that I have no issues with that because he's such a safe selection and and picking your rounds one and two is just about hitting on your foundation there but again you need to have more confidence than I do in the later uh, running backs Uh, but moving on Travis Kelsey 17th overall look I have him a couple spots below Kittle I know that might seem somewhat uh, unconventional or controversial Kelsey's awesome. I mean, I got no qualms with picking Kelsey. He's the number one tight end in four straight seasons. Uh, He actually only had five touchdowns last year, so I think he could be due for like, you know, a few more touchdowns in that department. According to Kyle Trajewski, Kelsey actually had 12 targets inside the 10-yard line, the second most in the league, but he only caught three passes in that area on those 12 targets for two touchdowns. So, yeah, I mean, I like Travis Kelsey. Patrick Mahomes is a quarterback. I mean, other than injury, there's just not a lot that could go wrong there with that pick. And I value securing elite tight ends uh, early, uh, especially just because you can get 
Again, you can get all these wide receivers later. And speaking of that, the two or three players rounding out my second round draft grades are, are Pat Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Tyreek Hill. And with the quarterbacks, you know, I, I see them as, as round late round two guys in traditional leagues where you start one quarterback. And, and I'm deviating from the expert rankings there who will recommend that you wait until like the 40s for these guys. And I just can't do that. Because I, I value safety in rounds one and two, and I think taking Mahomes or Jackson likely will not lose you your league. And though I will admit that you may not be able to even have a chance to get these guys, because in some home leagues they go like super high, but I wanted to rank them well ahead of the experts so you had a chance. And you know, if, if the elite tight ends go and Julio's gone and you're in the late round two and they're still on the board, you know, I wanted to give people the opportunity to draft these elite quarterbacks because both of them, in my opinion, should be scooped up because of their floor and because of their upside. And just because in this year that's even more uncertain than ever, you want to be emphasizing safety. So I'll just give you my favorite stats that maybe kind of justify why I'm okay with taking a quarterback late in round two. Uh, Mahomes, if you replace his three playoff games with the three regular season games that he missed because of his knee injury. So you're still at a 16-game sample here. He averaged 24.03 points per game, and that was QB2 pace. So Mahomes, still the best player in the NFL, just a loaded supporting cast with Tyreek Hill, McCall Hardman, Sammy Watkins, Travis Kelsey, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, above-average offensive line, returning four or five starters. Andy Reid's offense is just so extremely quarterback-friendly. And the only thing that's really changed since Pat Mahomes threw for over 5,000 yards and, and 50 touchdowns in 2018 when he was a total fantasy league winner, the only thing that's really changed since then is that he's won a Super Bowl. So, so I rank Mahomes. I have Mahomes slightly ahead of Jackson, even though Jackson vastly outscored him and every other quarterback last year. And he was the real-life MVP, and he was also fantasy MVP, 27.78 points per game. That was three more points a game than Mahomes' adjusted fantasy totals I just gave. But there's concerns about declines in efficiency. Jackson averaged a touchdown for every nine, sorry, a 9% touchdown rate. So every 9% of his throws went for a score, which is an extremely high rate that is due for regression. And like, like there's no way he's sustaining that. And the thunder in the background definitely agrees with that sentiment there. But I will say this. That and the fact that defenses may be more prepared for him or more gearing out to stop his rushing or whatever the case is, that kind of stuff is mitigated by an increase in volume, which is also very expected because the Ravens only trailed on 19% of their offensive snaps last year. So Jackson will likely be dropping back more to throw in 2020. And he also gets Marquise Brown back healthy. And Mark Andrews could also stand to have a healthier season. So yeah, as long as Jackson you know, doesn't get hurt, you know, I think he's going to ball out. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. And I'm okay with taking him late in round two, but I do have Mahomes just a tad bit ahead because I think Mahomes could have, you know, a 50 touchdown season that's in his range of outcomes. Whereas I think Jackson's going to rest a little bit in, in, in some areas. So Tyreek Hill is the last player with a second round grade that I have, and he's just kind of a roller coaster ride. I mean, we know the situation here. Uh, he was wide receiver six in my adjusted 
uh, in pace in my adjusted fantasy totals last year. And, you know, he plays, he's the most explosive player for the league's most explosive quarterback. And that's just what it is with Tyreek Hill. You're going to have some league win, some week winning weeks, and you're going to have some letdown weeks where he's not used a lot. Okay, well, that about sums it up for round two. And we have gone over rounds one and two of my draft guide. So early round targets and what I would do in the first two rounds of the draft. We There's a lot of uncertainty here, especially at the top portion of round two or early round two. A ton of uncertainty. There's Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon are both dealing with potential holdouts. And we'll have to, I'll have to keep out to monitor that situation and keep you all updated and even make necessary rankings adjustments or movement on the draft board. According to what I'm hearing, I've already moved Joe Mixon down from eight overall as a first-round pick to the second round because he is sitting out in camp right now. And there's also just a lot of a, la- a lack of clarity with other run- early-round running backs in round two. Miles Sanders dealing with a little bit of an injury. Kenyon Drake had a walking boot on earlier this this week. But he's supposedly going to be fine. Both of them are. But there's just, you know, there are two kind of polarizing prospects there. And Nick Chubb, just such a boom or bust pick in my opinion. So all of this just kind of adds up to make me really want an early pick even more, like a top six pick even more. Because because it means in the second round of the draft, I'm going to be landing somebody like Kittle you know, who I love, or Julio Jones and Kelsey, or even Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, very safe picks there. And I do have, you know, I have this urge to draft running backs because I just think they are so important this year. Because if you follow my board, you will be able to get receivers in rounds five through seven, like even good ones, very good ones. So I want to lean running backs early. Like to the point where if I come through after four rounds of the draft and have three running backs and one elite tight end, like I'm pretty thrilled with that. But there, but there's no problem with going, you know, running back and then like a Devonte Adams or a, or a Julio Jones or a Michael Thomas. There's no problem with going the elite receivers there and going running back, receiver, and then running back. But it's just, it's just not the year to be taking two wide outs in the first two rounds of the draft or to be taking two of your first three picks being wide receivers or even it's just not the year to not have two of your first three picks be running backs, in my opinion. So so we're going to touch more on that in my next episode when we talk about rounds three and four. And round three, man, I, I just did not realize how controversial my round three uh, board was. But it is. I mean, there's just a lot of unconventional opinions in there, a lot of aggressive stances. We're going to talk about why I love James Conner, why I love Mark Andrews, why I love David Johnson and and a couple of my favorite receivers out of that big, enormous range of receivers like five through like receivers 25 in rounds three through seven. We're going to talk about all of that in my next episode. And then the episode after that, we will break down the wide receivers in rounds five through seven, including some of my favorite targets, Will Fuller and Marquise Brown, that are going really late in drafts. And I will be adding descriptions to their uh, and explanations to their profile as we go through this podcast. And I'll be making the necessary rankings adjustments on the draft board according to breaking news, training camp reports, etc. So stay tuned. 
Again, the draft guide is fantasylawguide.com. It's on the left-hand side of the page labeled Fantasy Law Guide. So definitely check that out. And hey, ask me questions. Hit me up. Tell me what you don't like about the guide. You know, what player rankings you disagree with. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you hate. You know, it's all open here. Hit me up and let me know if you have any questions. You may be Your questions may be featured on the shows. And I would just love to have y'all's input. So that'll conclude today's episode. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you know, do me a favor, hit subscribe, give this podcast a five-star rating. Thank you so much for listening to everybody. See ya.